Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. By 2050, the world's human population is expected to rise to 9.7 billion. That's a lot of people on our planet with a lot of needs we're already grievously failing to meet. So picture a world map spread across a wall in front of you. Place one little red dot across the continents for every person represented in these next stats. 2.1 billion people lack clean drinking water where they live. How red is your map? Okay, now clear the dots. 4.5 billion people are without safely managed sanitation. Where do you see them on the map? Reset again. This time, 1.6 billion people are without adequate housing, many completely unsheltered and displaced. Where are they right now? Clear it off. Now let's take a look at education around the world. 114 million kids right now do not have basic reading and writing skills, and 759 million adults are illiterate and without means to improve their living conditions. Some of these folks are also the same red dots from earlier. That is, they're facing multiple comorbidities in an everyday plight to survive. So what does it mean to be alive to them? Have you asked? All right, wipe off your map and let's do one more round. Picture this in red. Half the world lacks access to essential health services and millions get pushed into extreme poverty just because of health expenses. And there's going to be billions more of us? I remember years ago when I viscerally realized that my personal success, if not connected to collective improvement and flourishing, registers alongside a certain cognitive dissonance, not because it's wrong to pursue individual dreams or mandatory that I solve every crisis, but because I'd be denying an obvious interconnectedness of all life if I didn't see that my success and liberation are wrapped up in everyone else's, as well as the consequences of my choices affect more than myself. Unless I place and keep community first, my methods often neglect or are at the expense of others' well-being. And that doesn't bode well for the altruist. Sure, there is a natural trade-off in the circle of life, giving and taking, providing for self versus offering to others, and something dying, plant, animal, person, so another may live. But the imbalances we've created between those who have and those who do not have do not need to be this extreme or of this design. Today, we're going to look at another fundamental part of our existence that is both a favorite pastime and global crisis, depending on the conversation of the hour. And that is food. Food can be an afterthought, a cultural staple, an act of love, a tool for health, a driver of severe anxiety and despair. It might tell you about someone's personality, the flora and fauna of an area, or human evolution. 
what can we learn about ourselves and humanity from something so basic yet satisfying and influential? Let's find out, beginning first with some contrast and context. Despite the abundance of food we produce, hunger from lack of food reaches every part of the globe. If we were to return to the world map on the wall, you may be tempted to place red dots across countries you've never visited that seem far away, but hunger is also in your own neighborhood. There's red everywhere. You may hear about food insecurity being caused and agitated by drought, conflict, and or rapid population growth. Yes, and it can also hit when you least expect it. In this roller coaster year alone, we see businesses closing, then opening, then closing again due to mandated shutdowns. And many people who are out of work or with reduced hours now have to decide if they'll buy groceries or pay rent this month. Families are rationing a single meal across the entire week. Then there's this unfortunate reality that the dollar menu hamburger, while more affordable and accessible in some areas, provides calories needed to function at a base level but costs you your health in the end. Nutritional deficiencies from a poor diet can lead to a host of serious medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, fatty liver disease, and anemia. And that's not even getting into the mental toll it takes on a person. Problems compound and treatments are expensive, causing overall wellness to suffer further. Anyone who experiences navigating daily responsibilities, finances, and society on top of an empty stomach or with an ill body does not lovingly wish it on anyone else. There shouldn't be any gatekeepers or hoops to jump through to get access to nourishing food. In the U.S. alone, we have over 2 million active farms, yet we're currently dumping tons of produce and meat because the buyers, the countless schools and restaurants now closed, have no need for the food, and the farms don't have a way to easily distribute directly to consumers. So the system is flawed, <laughs> surprise, but clear adjustments and new methods in production and distribution can fix it. So what would a future look like where everyone is fed and sufficiently provided for? What are people doing today to ensure we have a better tomorrow? And how can we turn food into a topic that not only evokes delight and connection and even creativity, but makes those things available to everyone to feel equally. This brings me to our guest today, food and wellness advocate Sophia Rowe was a chef at Michelin-starred restaurant 11 Madison Park before becoming a private chef for East Coast elites. After departing the demanding hours of the kitchen, she focused her career on improving access, diversity, and inclusivity within the wellness community. Yes, those overused D and I words, which by now now ought to be taking on more of a rounded understanding. Her passionate, large social media audience has continued to grow thanks to her honest conversations about her own past trauma, her encouragement in finding what works for you, and her candid, approachable advice on all things wellness and nutrition. We're about to dig into it all. Welcome to Simplexity, Sophia. What an intro. Those intros are good. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot of words, but I appreciate your patience. Okay, so you really are the definition of multi-hyphenate, food and wellness activist, author, chef, many more titles. And the internet tells me you really kicked off your career in food first, starting as a restaurant chef after spending some time at the Culinary Institute of America. 
Can you give us a brief synopsis of what led you to food and when did you know you wanted to pursue that field? It's funny because it's like super not a glam story at all. Like it was... (laughs) in college. Well, first off, I was like in and out of foster care, group homes. My dad died before I could meet him. My mom, substance abuser, still a substance abuser. I don't even know what my mom is doing. Like I have, I have not spoken to this woman, like literally don't know dead or alive. Like haven't spoken to this woman in years. So I didn't have any guidance. I worked really, really hard, filled out all that FAFSA paperwork, got to college, didn't know what I was doing, dropped out of college, just needed a job, got a job at a Vietnamese restaurant because they were hiring and told them I know how to use a knife when I didn't, but they hired me. (laughs) And then I learned and I was like, oh, I guess I can do this. Like I can make money doing this. Like that's a cool thing that I can do. And um, it really was a, it was a kind of accidental thing. I, it's funny that people are like, wow, you went to Culinary Institute of America. I'm like, yeah, I dropped out. I'm a two-time college dropout. Really important to say there. Like, it's cool. I've had some really great opportunities. I've worked in some great places and some great restaurants. And I think that's super gnarly. I've worked for really like big deal people and signed a lot of NDAs. So you're extremely knowledgeable about food and its related societal issues. I'm excited to get your thoughts on these. First, food scarcity. The most common myth of the food scarcity problem is that we have too little food to feed too many people. But in actuality, we have a global abundance of food and production has exceeded population growth since 1950. But still millions are going hungry and this hunger affects every country, regardless of the status of quote unquote development, which on another episode we will dive into what it even means to be a developing nation. What would you say we are overlooking when it comes to ensuring our world is universally well-fed? It's an access conversation. It's a wage gap conversation. It's socioeconomic. It's fiscal. Food costs money. It costs money to get from A to B. People aren't taking supply chain into demand. They're also into into context. They're not thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I also think like I'm a black woman. I live in a black neighborhood. There is no grocery store here. There's also segregation still happening, redlining, liquor lining, retail lining, super funds. These are areas that people don't even have quality oxygen, right? You have to also look at the demographics of people who don't have food. Who doesn't have food, you know? I think instead of just like making it this general thing, like there's no food, there's food and people have it. So who doesn't have it, right? I think we need to look at the people that don't have it. And I know for me, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I live in Bed-Stuy. And Bed-Stuy, I live in East East Brooklyn because I'm on the outskirts of Bed-Stuy. And it's interesting, you know, there's not a lot of food, but there's a lot of pawn shops. There's a lot of liquor stores. There's a lot of fast food. So what ends up happening is you still, even if a a black family, say for instance, wants to have fresh food, where is it? Where do we go? Like we've got the fast food, we've got, we've got McDonald's. I guess that's what we'll have, you know? And like, again, this, this conversation is huge. There, there's a weathering by racism conversation happening here, which, I mean, when we take how many different generations of a race have not had access to healthy food or good food, We go back eight generations, 12 generations, 16 generations. Think about where we could be now. So we hear this a lot. You know, black and brown people are disproportionately affected by dot, dot, dot. Heart disease, kidney disease, coronavirus, et cetera. But we're not really talking about why. We're not really talking about this also being, and I mean, I'm speaking particularly for the U.S., but this is kind of everywhere. We're not really talking about the segregation, the liquor lining, the access, the oppression that exists. We have to also look at what wellness has done 
in a way that isn't actually good for the planet. Look mm -hmm. at all the resources it takes to grow almonds, for instance. We've got this gnarly demand for almond milk, crazy demand for quinoa, crazy demand for acai. What is that going to do to the resources, right? What is that going to do to the farmers, the amount of work they have to do? How much it takes to get an avocado in New York in December? We just don't think about it. Like, oh, you know, I'll just have my avocado toast. I mean, they called them, like, these avocados are bloody. I mean, murder is happening in Mexico over this avocado farming. I mean, it's outrageous. And it's funny, in this, you know what? In December, you go to Mexico, you can't find an avocado anywhere because they're not there. They're in America. These granular things all matter and they seem really small and minuscule, but when a million of them are happening at once, then you have situations where there is no food. But it's like, this is a supply chain. This is, a, when the demand is high for something, it goes a million other places. And I think that that is an important conversation. Not only is it important and doesn't it entail a lot of different layers, I think that when we have it, like this food scarcity thing, we really need to get a lot more granular and separate out little boxes. We've got 40% of the food grown in America is thrown directly in the garbage for cosmetic purposes, which means 40% of the food, 40% of the water, 40% of the labor, 40% of the gasoline, right? Like trucks, we, I mean, just go ahead in your wallet. If you've got 10 bucks, 10 ones, go ahead and take four of them and just throw them in the garbage. Every single time you have $10, take $4 and throw it in the trash. This is a major problem. Right? And so it's not about there not being food. It's what are we doing with the food we have? How are we treating it? Even once it gets on our plate, how are we eating? Are we just like scarfing our food down? Like I, I, I would tell people all the time, you know, when you have a plate of something in front of you, think about, don't just think about like the restaurant prepared it for you. No, no, no. Think about the truck, right? Think about the people who loaded it onto the truck. Think about it going through traffic. Your carrot is just, just driving through traffic. The farmer who grew it, the farmer who planted it. Now think about cultivating the land. Think about the sort of livestock, sort of like livestock farming is just as important as regular farming because livestock farming, grass, crop rotation. Just think about all that goes into you having a carrot on your plate. You know, it's an unbelievable amount of labor. And so I think when we're talking about food scarcity, we're not, we're not even getting into the nitty gritty of, I mean, we didn't even have a conversation about wage gap, but like food costing money, who in this country has money and who doesn't, right? Like that's a huge conversation. Like I've heard it a lot. Someone said to me recently, you know, just, you know, black and brown people are affected by heart disease and all these diseases, but then they continue to eat fast food. I'm like, there is no other food. Where is the food? That's why you can't call this a food desert. This isn't a food desert because a food desert proposes that there's no food. There's food. It's in a food apartheid. We don't have options. So when you get home from work, you have a McDonald's, that's your options, right? And so by the time we're actually treating, a, um, treating an illness, it's already a disease. We haven't been able to do any preventative care because there's no food, there's, there's no water, and we're living in a super fun, there's no clean air to breathe either, you know? So you're basically born with a weight vest on. These food scarcity conversations are also socioeconomic, they're fiscal, they're racial. It's a lot of conversation in one. Right. And when you tie something as basic as food to something as complex and greed driven and business driven as finances and money, there's automatically the exact recipe. <laughs> 
that's a great word choice, for disaster. There are so many hangups and, and ways where, where things can go wrong. And yet also, when you think about general education, no single person, when you just mentioned the list of different industries and how this is all intersectional, no single person is an expert across all sectors. And there's a lack of collaboration because we work in silos. So we're not talking to each other. We're not taking a holistic approach across any part of our existence. And then even when we think about our relationship to the land, I grew up in an industrialized area. And so I don't think I knew anything about gardening outside of maybe whatever some show might have, you know, been on HGTV at the dentist's office. And so there's a lack of, you know, agricultural awareness. And so, of course, we don't know why potassium matters in growing food. We don't understand some of these key fundamentals. So when we ask people to care about something, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. We don't think about food as land and planet and society. We think about food as I just need to get whatever I need to get in my body right now. Yeah. And so it really is, I mean, like you say, it's just so multi-layered. And so I want to dive a little bit further into access and availability. So for those who are unfamiliar, food retailers located near our homes determine our level of food accessibility, as Sophia is mentioning. And we rely on these intricate systems of production and trade to consistently provide us affordable, healthy options. And as Sophia is suggesting, sometimes if you don't have all of these different restaurants in your area, you'll have something like a convenience store. But food from a convenience store almost always costs more than the identical product from a grocery. So while you technically have access to food, you might be paying what's called a poverty penalty or a penalty where someone who has less money pays more for the same goods and services. So it's a double whammy. Sophia, you've mentioned many, but are there any other disadvantages that these women, men, kids, and people face when it comes to getting access to affordable and healthy food in specifically rural or urban areas? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, first off, the idea of a grocery store is a for-profit space. Grocery stores gotta make money. Farmers are delivering this food to this big like building and then you come to the building and you get the food. And so like this grocery store is like this middle experience that if you live where there's a farmer's market, you don't need to have that. The farmer's market just puts up a little area, you go to the farmer's market, you pick up your food, and you go home. It's a very simple kind of system. But it's interesting in these black and brown neighborhoods, we don't have those. I have been fighting tooth and nail to get one of those in my area of East Brooklyn, and it is so challenging. Sometimes there's this assumption, or again, this belief that maybe black and brown people don't want fresh produce, or like not even black, brown, any marginalized community, right? And so it just kind of traps us. I have to take three different trains to get to the Union Square Farmer's Market where I live. You know, I have the privilege of foot. I can walk. It's fine for me to do that. Not everyone has that. Mm -hmm. So there's a woman on my block. She has a little electric chair. She can't, what's she going to do? She can't get on the bus. She can't get on the train. So these are her options, right? Like this is what she has. And I think there's also a conversation that we need to have about redlining and retail, like sort of retail lining. Like there are certain grocery stores that don't actually want to be in these neighborhoods. They're not interested in that sort of customer. So I think that's a conversation too. Maybe maybe a conversation to dive into deeper on another another time. But that's just one more issue that sort of this marginalized people has to take into account. I think there's also lack of education. I think there's this 
idea that there's not a lot of space. Oh no, there's plenty of space. We could be having community gardens all over the place, everywhere. There's plenty of space. There's, I can think of five different places in my neighborhood where there's just something abandoned and somebody could just choose to grow things and we could have a whole community garden. But there's also this lack of education. Like you mentioned, I think that you know, people have no idea how important it is for nitrogen to be in the soil. They have no clue. This is why crop rotation is so important. If you keep growing the exact same thing in the exact same soil, there's not gonna be any nutrients left in the soil. This is why crop rotating is important. This is like something that I know because I care about this stuff. But I think when you've got a lack of education, you don't even know to care about this stuff. You know, I did a talk at a Bronx elementary school and it was unbelievable how many children had never seen a fresh tomato. They'd seen a picture, they, but they'd never seen that in person, touched a tomato. You know what I'm saying? And so this is not because there's bad parenting. This is not because they aren't being taught by a teacher because they see what a tomato looks like. They see a picture. It's, there's just no access to the fresh tomato, right? And since there's no access to it, we're disconnected from it. Mm -hmm. If we can't walk into a grocery store in our neighborhood and tangibly look and touch a tomato, then we just aren't worried about ketchup and tomato sauce. Like our brain isn't going to make those, those necessary synapses mm -hmm. to create, oh, this is a tomato. And a tomato, when you cook it, it becomes tomato sauce. You've got this lack of education. You've got this lack of access. You've got, well... There's something around, there's some kind, there's McDonald's, like this is what we've been doing, this is what my family's been doing, I guess we'll continue to do this. And then on top of it, when there is an ailment or a sickness, you're having to choose, do I go to work today or do I go five buses and two trains to the doctor, right? And the doctor's gonna cost my entire money that I made last week at work, right? This idea that black and brown people and marginalized people are disproportionately affected by COVID-19, do you know why? That's because they're all essential workers. Black and brown marginalized people are essential workers. They are nurses. They are uh, sanitation, public transport, working at the grocery store, working at the bodega. So of course, on top of these people are already probably not in a state where their bodies are performing healthy, right? Because they're not eating great food. They're not breathing great air, getting great water. But on top of that, they're continuing to work in a time where it's not safe to work. So it's just more weathering and more stress and more stress. And once you get to a certain point, even if we suddenly, suddenly overnight, here's good food, here's great air, here's great water, there's a disconnect because we don't understand it, because right. there is no education, because right. I didn't even know. By the time you're a diabetic, right, now suddenly we're going to start addressing this issue, like this stuff needs to be addressed, Genesis, at the mm -hmm. very, very, very beginning. And obviously we're not having these conversations, but a lot of times even within the black and brown neighborhoods, they are not understanding that these things are happening because they're just living in it, you know? I mean, how can you expect to see when there's an invisible dome around you and right. you have no idea that you were born into something that is so multi-layered and is so intergenerational and historical and institutional and pervasive, especially when it's already quite a miraculous experience as a single being to be developing at the pace that we do growing up. And as you mentioned, you know, when some people say, well, how could they have never seen a tomato or, well, they probably still saw photos of it. When you think about the way we exist in space, everything is a connection. We are building relationship with people, with planet, with 
objects. We are in relationship with everything. If you do not have a chance to build a relationship with healthy food, with opportunities, with ABC all the way to Z and back, then obviously there is going to be an ineptitude. And that's not just for people in terms of what they lack access to. That's for people who have been building the equal and opposite relationships with things who now don't understand what each other are going through. And so we'll dive in a little bit more in the sense of inequality and inequity here. So food inequality specifically spans from the farm all the way to the grocery shelf. If those of you listening are unfamiliar, farming subsidies, one in three white farms receive benefits, yet only one in four black farms and one in six Latino, Latinx, and Native American farms are subsidized. Interesting. The USDA has long been accused of discriminatory practices, yet they aren't the only ones leading to food inequality in our country. You mentioned supermarket redlining. It's prevalent in lower income, minority, and marginalized neighborhoods dating as far back as the 1930s. This practice refuses to open stores in these neighborhoods. And you mentioned the term food deserts. Well, that's not really what's going on. So from farm to table, how can we as consumers influence the way food is grown and access to be more inclusive? You mentioned advocating for bringing a market to your area, but it's such a, an uphill battle. Are we putting too much emphasis on supermarkets when you know, there are better solutions elsewhere? And how do, how do we, the average person, contribute? I mean, I think, it will, first off, we vote with our dollar. You as a consumer, people listen to consumers. We see the way the social media works. Listen, if enough people leave comments and say something to a brand, brands make changes. We see that happen literally every single day. This is just through Instagram. And so I think it's like this idea that you're powerless. We need to get rid of that. You do have power. You're the one with the money. The store is the one that needs your money. So we do have power. So I think that that's the first thing we need to get over. I also think there's this sort of education problem. And I think we need to start there. I think we need to start educating our children. I think there needs, and I know this sounds wild, but there needs to be like mandatory farming. Like there needs to be- I say this all the time. Like there needs to be education in the general sense. Even in a city, you can do this. Like planting a seed, showing a child. You know, you can grow a radish from seed to radish in less than eight weeks. Eight weeks, that's less than a school year. Right. Like, I'm sorry, it's a radish. You can eat it. Dip it in butter. It's delicious. You know, like I think there's this sort of idea that it's like, oh, we've got to do all these really big things. And yes, massive structural shifts need to happen. We live in a racist country in America. Like that's a big thing that does need to happen. But in a molecular sort of cellular level, there's also just like the, instead of like taking things and changing things, there's the addition of. Right. You need to be educated. You need to educated. I need to be educated. This right. is food. We need it to survive. Why do we know so little about it? Right. We know so little about food. It's unbelievable. Sometimes I'll, you know, go to a farmer's market even now and I'll see something and I'm like, I've never seen that before. Hmm. What is this? Like I will literally go to the farmer's market. And I'm like, wow, I've never seen this type of cucumber before. Right. That's not good. We need food to survive. And we just know so little about it, you know, and we're also so unwilling in a lot of ways to put the effort in. And that's because we can't imagine what's on the other side. And I think that's something that we need to kind of, we have our own hidden implicit biases within ourselves 
we think like, oh, it's just too much work. I just can't do it. Like that, you're part of the problem now, you know, like that, that sort of lazy learning, lazy action, right? Like you can do something about it. You wake up at first thing in the morning. Yeah, I can send some emails and I'll send some emails and I'll do what I can to get a farmer's market in my neighborhood. But it's also like, how hard is it for me to like take, take a class in farming or read a book in farming or, you know what I'm thinking? These are little things that I can incorporate into my day. Teaching children how to talk about food, right? Teaching children how to get integrated into the conversation of food. And it's, it seems really silly again to say like a six-year-old has never seen a tomato, but let's make six-year-old mom. Mom works at a nail salon and she works at a restaurant and she babysits, right? And there's no grocery store in the neighborhood. So this six-year-old, what does a six-year-old see? The inside of a nail salon, right? She's at home. There's other kids around. There's no grocery store. Before you know it, this six-year-old becomes a 10-year-old, becomes a 12-year-old, becomes a right? We are what we are around. Like you're in, our experiences inform us in every single way. Like they, they inform our memories, what we eat, what things taste like, all of those things. And so, yeah, now we've got a mother who can't really afford much else other than giving fast food to her child. And so what are we doing to these excitotoxins and these taste buds and this little person? You know, we are just creating this little person that has affinities for A through Z, this per, these people who are, they're, they're addicted to sugar. Why are they addicted to sugar? Because that was their, what was around. This is their option, right? And this is how it works. And so when we're looking at like other options, there are a million options. There are a million things that we can do. But before we do those options, we got to have a baseline. We got a prerequisite, ABCs here. Like we're talking about, oh, what can we do about supply chain? How about this? What's supply chain? You don't, do you know? <laughs> do you know about supply chain? Do you know that every single entity, every single thing, pot, pan, silverware, clothing, everything, the number one ingredient in all those things, water, water is in everything. It's in every single piece of everything that we have. What is, what is the most abundant fabric? 60% of the fabric that we have on this planet, polyester. It'll be here till the end of time, right? Like these things we don't know, so we can't really care about them. And so number one way to make a change and make something different is to know that there's a problem and learn about why it's a problem. I just see a lot of, you know, chicken with the head cut off, like, ah, so many things are wrong. So many things. What are better options? What are better options? And I'm like, tell me what's wrong. We don't have food. We don't have food. Tell me about food. What's food? Why? Wh what about food? What do you need? Right? Oh, you're sick. Tell me about sickness. Right? Like, I just think that overall, there's just so, even in these lower income marginalized communities, there's just no understanding. There's right. just no education. So there has to be a so much more attention put on mm. education. Like so much. I think before we do anything at all, we need to have a massive sit down with everybody and take, we all need to take the same course should be mandatory to drive a car. You got to take this course to get your driver's license. You got to take this course. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I just think that when we're looking at so many of these issues, the reason we're not all on the same page is because even knowing about these issues and understanding these issues is a privilege. Right. Even having the words for these issues is a privilege. We're having a very beautiful, privileged conversation because there are people right next door that can't, they don't have time to have these conversations because they got to get to work, because they got to get some kind of food on the table. They're upset about it. They don't like that they don't have access to food. They don't, they don't even have time to be upset about it. They really right. don't, you know? And so 
when we're having like, what can an average person do? If you've got some time on your hands, go ahead and go to a, these neighborhoods and just see the difference. Because I think a lot of people don't even really understand the difference. What is an oppressed person? Let me go see. Not in a, in a sort of like gross fetishistic, like kind of like uh, exploitative way, but just going to a black and brown neighborhood and seeing, wow, there legitimately is no food here. It really isn't a thing. Go to the local greenhouse and just, just hang out, go regularly, become a customer and get to know the woman, uh, this black woman who, who's, you know, has this greenhouse. And you'll probably learn that she lives in a multi-generational home. She's probably behind on her property taxes, right? She's probably had this, this little greenhouse for however long she's had it and get to know her. What is, what does she need? She probably needs resources out the yin yang. She probably doesn't, probably doesn't have social media. She probably doesn't have all the resources you had. She probably didn't go to college, right? right? All of those things, but she's at work because she doesn't have time. So I just tell people, you've got the biggest commodity at all. The most valuable thing you have is time. So if you've got time, go to these neighborhoods. Don't go to a neighborhood and say, oh, it's really cheap. I could just buy something here and I'll open up a restaurant and it'll be great. No, 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 no. You need to go into these marginalized neighborhoods and you need to teach these people how to open up their own restaurants, how to open up their own pantries so they can do it for themselves, right? And I think there needs to be a lot of that. If you went to college, then your, part of your wellness package for wellness and your collective is taking that college degree and sharing it. That's it. That's how you make your investment in college, whatever, if your parents paid for it, whatever. But that's how you make it worth it. Is $40,000 a year tuition worth it if you're the only one learning the information? No. But $40,000 a year of college might be worth it if you're teaching hundreds of people the same information that you learned that didn't have access to it. So again... It all kind of comes back to education. It's a big privilege conversation too. Like, you know, we're, we're mad that people aren't outraged about this, but the people that are impacted most just don't have time to be outraged about it. Right, you know? and I'm hearing a couple things. One is that it's not just about what we need to know, it's about how we know. And if we've been conditioned through different systems as we're growing up to be consumers, to be reactive, then we're not really sitting in a seat as a design thinking person. We're not thinking about our problem solving skills and how we can live right. from that empowered place. And it really does go back to you were saying, we really do have the power. However, it's, it's funny and funny is not the, the appropriate term, but it's just a filler word that even those of us who are in positions of major privilege across so many different areas of our lives still don't always recognize our power on a yeah. personal level. And right. there's this collective helplessness. There's this collective resolve, apathy, or it's too big, it's too much. What can I do? And really, before we even try to educate on facts, there's a paradigm shift in mental model. <laughs> right. And and it's and it comes from a place of possibility as opposed to lack from opportunity as opposed to fear. And now circumstantially, yes, there will be lack. There will be fear-inducing realities. But we sure as hell know that if we're approaching a problem with problem-based thinking, it will only compound <laughs> the problem. Absolutely. I think a lot of what we're doing too is we're really treating a lot of symptoms. We're not getting to right. these issues. Like I said, we have a massive socioeconomic racial situation. And to say that we don't, I mean, it's just... 
it's insane. I mean, well, and treating symptoms is very profitable, and we know that. And so, it's not only something that liberates the collective. If you reduce it simply to your own personal experience, the the process of unlearning and freeing your own mind to be a quote unquote free thinker or a free soul or a free agent who has autonomy over themselves, who doesn't automatically, when you get sick, think I must go to a pharmaceutical company because you now have tools and awareness for taking care of yourself in other ways. It really ends up leveling the playing field and you experience that freedom. And I do feel like once you taste that freedom, man, you're like, okay, I absolutely have to help unlock this door for as many people as possible. Um, because yeah, it's, it's funny how we collectively agree and entrust our lives to systems blindly without questioning the alternative by nature. We are all creative. Right. A thousand percent. I mean, even when we think about like a kindergarten teacher, like what's a good kindergarten teacher. And we think about these like sort of non-cognitive skills, these soft skills is what they're called. Right. You know, essentially. Like that's what makes a great kindergarten teacher. It's not about teaching addition, math, those read, like it's learning how to read. Like, yes, those things are so important. But then there's this other, these soft skills, which is like sharing, being and eye contact. And eye contact is a really, really big one. Eye contact, also like being able to stop and tell a person how you feel about something, mm-hmm. right? Like that we see direct correlation to strong soft skills and strong non-cognitive skills to actually making more money later in life. Right. And so when we're able to, again, back to education, when we're able to learn those soft skills, those non-cognitive skills, we're also able to grow up and become people that can take in new information and change our minds. And this is really important because things, new information happens. Malcolm X talked about this. I mean, we have to be people who can read something new and say, wow, I was wrong. Now I stand corrected, flip the script, right? But if we don't have those non-cognitive skills, if we don't learn those soft skills when we're younger, we are what we see. And that is it. That is it. Seal the envelope. Well, this really sucks. And all this stuff is happening and people can't eat, but like, well, nothing I can do about it because we didn't get those cognitive think you can those non-cognitive like oh let me be squirrely like let me see here mm-hmm. maybe there's a lot of different ways i can get this situation handled we're, right. we're again we're looking at problems incorrectly right we're not looking at them like we actually want to solve them you know we're looking at them and we're upset about them and we throw fits and we throw temper tantrums about them but we're not actually looking at things like what could i create and let's Let's really like make a problem. Like even if it's like some kind of maze, right? Like let's creatively get ourselves out of this maze. But maybe it's not getting ourselves out of the maze. Maybe it's a whole new maze. Like maybe we need to wipe this maze clean. Maybe we need to like some, maybe there's some systematic things that need to shift here and there. But unfortunately, if you don't have those soft non-cognitive skills to be able to like stop and say, there is an issue here. There are some holes here. They, let's, let me see. There's a hole right there. There's a hole right there. Language for each hole, right? Like, cause language as we know is so incredibly important. We are in a place again, like I said, that there are children that don't even know what things are, mm-hmm. let alone understanding eye contact, empathy, under, um, sharing, understanding there's a person in the corner crying. That's weird. Let me go see why this person is crying. 
you know, our benchmark for education, test scores. That's it. That's our benchmark. Yeah. Don't get me started. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So like, you know, and I know just to bring everybody back, like we're still talking about food. Benchmark is test scores. That's it. Can someone write a sentence? We're not going to really worry about what the sentence is made of. We're not going to really worry about any of that. Can they do a sentence? Cool. You're past. You're on to the next grade. You don't know how to feed yourself. You don't know anything about food growing out of the ground. You don't know anything about water. You don't know anything about the environment. You don't know anything about the ocean. You don't know anything about your body. We don't take a, we don't, you know, in America, you don't get a biology class until you're in like 11th, 10th or 11th grade. Right. You know, we have no idea. If I, if I could go to probably 10 different people and say, where's your esophagus? And there's going to be some people who don't know. They will be thinking about asparagus. Yes. They will be. They will be. And so again, I, I think all of these conversations really come down, not only just the system itself, because that's the biggest kind of elephant in the room, but you can't understand that the system is a problem and that it's an elephant in the room if you don't have the education to understand that that's the problem. When new information comes in, instead of being married to your identity, be married to transformation. That way, when it doesn't align with what you currently know, you don't perceive it as a threat to discard, but you can embrace it, tease it out, examine it, and then change your inner hardwiring until it's continually refined, refined, more and more refined and can serve, you know, the most people. Obviously I say most people in service because that's sort of the heartbeat of what makes sense to me in life. Yes. I mean, we can distill anything down into still it enough. And it's, I mean, the clarity is, it's indelible. You know what I'm saying? I just, when I'm looking at these things and I'm looking at, okay, this is a structural thing. You know, we've got segregation. So I'm looking at all these things and I'm like, wait, but you've got to already be at a certain point to even get this, mm-hmm. to even understand that this is a thing. And also this goes to within the black and brown marginalized communities. It's also this kind of like, well, I've always eaten like this. This is what we've had access to. It's also that kind of opening up. I mean, we can even make this, you can make this lighter if you wanted to. And just being like, well, I, I hate vegetables right? It's just this unbelievable sort of butting heads with shifting and changing. And so I've been so decontextualized over time, as Resma Menachem says, when he was talking about racialized trauma, that it suddenly just looks like personality traits. Absolutely. Customs. Oh, this is what what, what we eat at the cookout. This is what we don't eat at the cookout. And it's like, okay, yes, and. Yes. This runs deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's obviously an example that has a lot of layers. And I recognize me using the term cookout as a white person, also acknowledging that my proximity to the culture because of my background with Dancing with Missy and A, B, C, and D has had me receiving a lot of messages being invited to such cookout. So that's the only reason for that example. No. And we, listen, I'm a black woman here, not offended. Love that you brought that up because I, (laughs) Because it's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, this sort of like, even like you see the angry black woman narrative or the, or black men look scary narrative. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, I mean, so tired, so gross. I mean, so disgusting in so many ways. That narrative, I mean, that is such big systemic racism. It's insane. But there's also what I will say, if there's any community that has a right to be angry, it is these black, brown, marginalized communities. And when I say marginalized, I even mean Asian indigenous, Latinx, Hispanic, right? Like all POCs. Uh, We're talking about everybody. If there's anybody, we also know too, as someone super trauma informed, what is defensiveness 
and anger, what else is that? That's pain. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like anger, defensiveness, an inability to shift, very kind of suspicious, untrusting. That's all symptoms of trauma. All symptoms of trauma, all a second language to I'm in pain. That's where that stuff comes from. I am literally the weathering by racism on a DNA level I'm experiencing are trickling into my body. And of course there are certain characteristics. What happens if you, what would you, what would it be like for you if you knew you had kids at home that you could barely feed? You'd probably be pretty mad too. And Mm -hmm. so things that get woven into, like you mentioned, personality, they don't just appear there. They come from something right? They come from somewhere. And I think that's another important conversation. But again, you got to have that ABCs, that sort of prerequisite. We are on course like 5.2 now, you know, like there's got to be that 101, you know, sort of ABCs, understanding the system that we live in. Where do we live, right? What is this place? You know, I, I was talking on my community on Instagram and it's interesting how many white people that were Americans did not define themselves as immigrants. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> you're like, I don't want to like, I'm just like, what? <laughs> You're an immigrant too. You can't, I mean, we know about war, American Revolutionary War. Did you miss that section? You know what I'm saying? So just based the terminology on- and how we define immigrant is oh so- my- Right. Like we have, we have politicians in this country that call Mexican Americans illegals. And so if you're a child and you hear that and you see that, how is that not going to also be interwoven into, right, who you become and who you are? And this is why, like I say, don't get me started on food until you have an education conversation first. Right. There first. Because once I, once you know that, once I know you know what colonization is and you know, and you understand how much farmland black people used to own and why they don't already, or excuse me, why they don't still own that farmland, right? Like once I know that you've got that baseline, now I know that you are equipped to be able to tackle this food scarcity maze creatively. Because right. that's what it's going to take. We are not going to be able to feed the people that need fed if we're not already understanding A through Z. You've got to be able to creatively sort of step outside of things and be pedagogically informed enough to not just feel creative by yourself, but also share that message. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, right. And so we're going to take a hard pivot back <laughs> to food. And, and I know we covered a lot of territory. And so we won't get through everything in one conversation. And I hope this is inspiring people who are listening to be simultaneously Googling these terms. If anything is unfamiliar and already kind of clicking and adding things to your list that you'll look up later. And then afterwards, of course, application. So to just sort of streamline some concepts and review, (laughs) a hearty review, food insecurity can develop from countless causes. It can be a sudden loss of a once stable income. It can be health issues, an unforeseen accident that drastically changes dietary situations overnight and the affected are you know no longer able to feed themselves or their families adequately and food insecurity has equally troubling effects under the surface so you know people yes are trying to decide what to pay for rent transpo medical costs or food but then there's also all of these other health issues and you know not limited to but might include cyclic food restriction binge eating hypoglycemia reducing the amount of 
medication taken, hypertension, diabetes, obesity. I mean, it just goes, 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 and goes, and goes. And then even on a psycho-emotional level, you, you have feelings of isolation. Um, you have feelings of you face developmental risks. I mean, we can go on forever. It really does go that deep. Even people who have less access to food are more likely to face higher risks of substance abuse. And if you want to figure out how those two correlate, Google your life away. So let's go a little bit into allocation. We live in a nation with seemingly plenty of resources, yet last year's USDA's household food insecurity in the U.S. report revealed 14.3 million households are food insecure. And so there are programs like SNAP, SNAP, that's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. We have WIC, uh, WIC, Women, Infants, and Children Food Packages. And those are beneficial to many, but it's not enough. Do you think there's a better or additional solution for providing access and allocation to affordable, healthy food to anyone in need? Yeah, I think we need to start actually giving, first off, I think there needs to be, and this is like a wild idea, but I think there needs to be like, along with education programs, I think that we should create a program where we're like, we're going to allocate you a piece of land. We're going to literally give you a piece of land. You're required to use it and you have to use it for farming. We will give you all the resources in which to do so, literally, and we'll pay you. We will pay you to stop whatever you're doing job-wise. If you're doing something, we'll pay you to, this is your land. The only request, again, you've got to make sure you grow food on it. And we're going to pay you to learn how to do it as well. So don't worry if you don't have those skills. That, to me, I know that's so utopian. Like that, There's so many different ways that that doesn't work in the current system. But this is also me just being creative. I think that could be unbelievably wonderful, especially mm -hmm. since we already know that there are so many black, brown, marginalized people that actually have farming experience. They just can't afford the equity necessary to buy and purchase their own land. Right. So there's, there's that element. I also think that there needs to be some kind of mandatory drop off. Maybe there's a big pickup location, or excuse me, there are many different big pickup locations throughout a, a given area. You know, here, and I have, I have them written down, we have the New York City Coalition Against Hunger, we have City Harvest, which is right across the street from me, Food Change Inc., there's food pantries, but that doesn't really necessarily help with access if they're not accessible. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's great. I have City Harvest across the street, but what happens is there's a line that wraps around the block, around the block, around the block. And then in two hours, the food is gone. So half the people that are waiting in line for two hours didn't even end up getting food anyway. Right. Mm -hmm. So there could be some kind of like program where we have this food and we actually physically drop it off at various addresses. Here's mm -hmm. the food drop off the same way that their sanitation works, right? Like literally the exact same way. And that could be like, I could even see a website. Like it could be like, government sort of run where you go on and you sort of choose your options and you pick the things that you need. And that also just eliminates this need for a big grocery store, which I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. you're, a, you're a person at home. You're basically online shopping, you know? And like, I, that's a very kind of future thing, but we are, Instacart does it. Instacart, that, that's a thing. You can go on Instacart and you can order your groceries from anywhere, but it's a gajillion, million, thousand, billion dollars, right? More than if you were to just go to the grocery store. And so I'm saying, okay, why can't we, again, this is, a, this is a very liberal idea too, because this is also proposing that the government do something about this. But I, I, mean, I mean, I don't want to totally have a reparation conversation, 
conversation, but I'm just saying it's owed. These black, brown, marginalized communities, they are owed food. We're asking for food here also. Like, it's not like we're having this conversation and we're talking about like money or we're talking about a new home. We're literally talking about ways to get food. I am willing to bet that in black and brown neighborhoods, marginalized communities, people would love to be given a piece of land and told all they got to do is farm it. What a joy. Can you imagine your life? What an incredible life, you know? And you just growing food. Who are you growing food for? Oh, your own neighborhood? Amazing. And so then that would even be a better way to do it because now you just go to your neighborhood farms to pick up your boxes of food, right? And here we have this entire community. You're talking less crime. You're talking less, less crime means less police. Right? Like you're talking people having access to food. Now you're ta also talking hands on education because guess who's going to see those tomatoes now? Oh, because it's the mom that works at the nail salon. She's just going to the local farm to pick up her food, right? There's volunteer opportunities. Now there's programs. There needs to be at least a thousand of these farms in these cities. There's no reason they can't exist. I've seen it. It can totally be a thing. And so this is my major push. Like forget the grocery store because clearly that's its own kind of consumer fiscally run thing, right? And let's really focus on food at the granular level, like growing it and actually managing it and doing it ourselves and making food as important. Food is news. It's as important as social media. We need to make food as important as Beyonce. Do you know what I'm saying? Beyonce is important. <laughs> Beyonce is very important and so is food. <laughs> and I, I know time is limited, so I'll probably just end up covering more bases after we hop off. We, I, I intended to discuss future threats, you know, and how we might adapt and prepare during this time to better serve rising community needs. I intended to ask about emerging economies because markets have traditionally been agricultural based. And then thanks to industrialization, right now they're quickly expanding their middle classes. But with the shift comes dietary changes, and then that affects local supply chains, and they're trying to meet new demands. And so I, you know, I wanted to ask how the new urbanization economies maintain a sustainable local food supply and, and meet the evolving dietary needs, which as a plant-based and vegan person too, that also is a totally different yes. element of things. But you know, I'll just throw that behind me at the moment. We got to talk again. <laughs> I know. And, and so, yeah, I just, there's, there's the issue of global waste in this. There's, you know, just so many growing needs, but I think just for the last moment, because wellness and communal wellness is something that really is so integral in everything that you do. I just, I would love to hear anything you'd like to say in terms of the wellness industry being skewed towards serving a predominantly white upper middle class audience and, and what businesses can do or whatever, taking action per, yes. on a personal level, whatever feels most, what's at the tip of your tongue at the moment. I mean, ultimately it's like, even when, you know, cause we have a lot of, you know, like these very white, I mean, cause like wellness is so commodified as we know, and we, you know, like goop and I'll call people out. I don't care. You know, it's like, we look at those brands and even if suddenly those brands are selling black lives matter t-shirts, who's getting the money for that? Mm -hmm. Just going back into the company. Right. Mm -hmm. and so I think there needs to be a lot of these wellness companies that are actually putting those funds into the people that invented these ideas right? Like, I'm sorry, matcha tea is not on some new stuff. Matcha tea 
yeah, Kyoto, Japan, you're welcome. Do you know what I'm saying? Bone broth wasn't invented by Brodo. You know what I'm saying? And so it's not enough to credit. It's not enough. It's not enough to say like, oh, this indigenous dot, dot, dot. No, no, no. What are you doing to support these indigenous people? What are you doing to support these people who created these ideations and beliefs? Like that is just so important. I also think that there's this sort of like idea that there aren't a lot of black and brown people in the wellness space. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. If your wellness, if your feed, if you're a wellness person and your feed only is white women, uh, that's a problem. Because first off, there, so you, there's no men. You don't have anyone who identifies as a man in your wellness space or your wellness circle. Also, like even the idea of veganism. Um, I'm sorry, white people didn't invent what it is to be vegan. Right. There are countries that are vegan by proxy of that's just the way that it is. Hello, Africa. There right. are places in Africa where being the India, this is even, I mean, even J- Jamaica. I mean, there are places with like ital food, you know, the whole like vital foods, like that whole idea is right. that you're eating plant-based foods. And so I think that we also, we need to hold brands accountable to showing, again, because we're so informed by what we see, right? Even in an attraction way, right? If we only see Leonardo DiCaprio our entire lives on screen, we're going to find that to be what we want to see and what we're attracted to. Mm-hmm. So these brands need to get more diverse. They obviously need to be, I need to see more pictures of black and brown people that are vegan because there are so many black, brown, marginalized people that are vegan. It is not Mm -hmm. just a white thing. It is not. But I also think, and again, we wanted to have that conversation. There are a whole slew of problems and a whole slew of issues with, the whole planet going vegan is also a problem. Mm -hmm. So that's its own um, issue there too. But I also think the wellness space is can get very judgy. And we get to this place where we care more about animals and animal rights than we care about human rights. And I tell people all the time, listen, I need you to take all that angry vegan energy. When you see someone eating a burger, that anger, I need you to feel that exact same way about marginalized people. I need you to be just as mad, just as pissed off, right? All this research that you've done and how to be vegan, do that same amount of research for black, brown, marginalized people. Like that is something that the wellness space needs to be doing. We need- And wellness is not narrow. It's not a whole host of outward face masks. It is- Wellness, sun, air, water, right? Movement, right? Purpose, community. When people are talking general wellness, they're talking self-optimization. Self-optimization is not wellness. They aren't the same thing. Your $59 smoothie isn't necessarily wellness. It's a $59 smoothie. I'm sure it's very optimizing, but it has nothing to do with necessary wellness. I can go down to the, my corner store here in Brooklyn and go down and get, yeah, it's conventional spinach. Yeah, you know, conventional cucumber, but I can go down and get some cucumber, some spinach, and I can come here in my juicer and I can make myself a wonderful juice. The process of me making it is wellness. The process of me drinking it is wellness. The process of me cleaning up the process of making it is wellness, right? A good cry is wellness. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that we've just really lost base of what this wellness is. I don't trust someone who doesn't cry, who doesn't have purpose, who doesn't have feelings, 
Who I thinks wellness care. is a price tag? That's it. If you're, I don't care if you're doing all the cryogenic and you're doing, I see so many people, I have a lot of friends who are very wealthy and they do these retreats and they're so stressed. I've got it. Oh my God. I've got to go do a retreat. They go do these retreats. And again, you do what you need to do to, to stay well and do your self-care. I'm no judgment here. But you go and you do your Bali retreat and then you come back and you got glowing skin and you feel amazing. And then in six weeks, you're stressed out and you're upset again. You know why? Oh, it's because you don't care about your community. It's because you don't have collective wellness. It's because mm. you came back, you got this beautiful glowing skin. What the hell did you do with it? Did you go down and call the school board? Did you go down and send some emails? Did you go down and, and, and talk about uh, talk, whether we're talking about police reform, whether we're talking about food reform, education reform? Did you care about your community? When you went to the farmer's market, did you buy your neighbor any cherries? You know, you see that your neighbor, your neighbor might be a single black woman with three kids. Did you get her any food? Did you think about that? No wonder you need a retreat every six weeks because the only person you're thinking about is you and you're boring. If everything is about me, I'm boring as hell. You know, like I just need people to imagine everything that you do is not about you. You are a performing member of this society. You live within a body, you live in a system. And so if you are only thinking about yourself, how can this body work? You can, before you know it, become your own blood clot within and amongst the system if you're not mindful. So everything that we do, just imagine, who is this for? Who am I doing this for? Now I understand that we need to take care of ourselves and self-care is really important. But once you've done that, once you reach a semi-apex in your sort of self-care, you then need to step out of that and we need to talk about we and us care. I don't understand how you can possibly be in a wellness space and if you're and in wellness be 100% commodified and be thinking you're doing anything, making any kind of difference. Mm. And so it's really just like the wellness industry as a whole just really needs to start look at thinking less about itself and more about the people that it was supposed to be there to benefit. And right. Be there, you exactly. Know? And I know everyone is going to want to know how we can follow you, how we can find more. You're writing two books. One's a collection of stories about the New York City subway and the other is going to be a memoir of, on your experiences. How can we find you? How can we follow you? And yeah, you and I are going to have to sidebar and, yeah. and chat more. Yeah. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. So I'm on Instagram. My name, Sophia underscore Rowe. You got to put the underscore in there. Because there is a different Sophia Rowe. So Sophia underscore Rowe. Found her too. Yes, yeah, but you did. You got to put that underscore in there. My videos are all over YouTube. And yes, I'm in the middle of two books. Those will be coming out next year. And we're really, really excited. One is a little bit more memoir cookbook. The other one is about the New York City subway because I can't think of a place more inspiring for me, more moving to me. If you really want to grasp humanity and how we are all really just living amongst each other, you'll ride the subway. You'll see a man in Ferragamo shoes drinking a juice press juice with a $1,200 briefcase standing right next to someone who's experiencing homelessness. And it's just a really wonderful way the subway is just this really wonderful place um, to see a lot of things. And I did a crazy thing. I spent 36 hours under ground. I didn't surface one time. So I stayed underground for 36 hours and it's a book about that experience. So that's really cool. Yeah. It's really, really amazing. And it's, now it's even, I'm so glad I did that pre COVID because now the experience of riding the subway, is not even 24 hours anymore. Mm. Um, and so it's the, it's the only public transportation in the world that always ran 24 hours a day. And now it doesn't do that anymore because we're in the middle of COVID. So I'm really happy that I had that experience. Using the bathroom was interesting. That's interesting, but you'll have to read the book to find out about that. Yes, can't wait. Would love to know nothing more than your toilet escapades. Oh, yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for your time. I will let you go. We'll continue the conversation with our community after. And yeah, we just, we're excited to support you. And I'm sure people will be hitting you up either in DMs or just on your comment section being like, Hey, this is amazing. And if you're listening, make sure you do that. Show her some love and support. And then probably even more importantly, listen to what she's saying and apply it. Oh, that part. Listen, listen, listen. Love listening. That's the best. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. We will chat soon. Have a great rest of your day. Wow, I have a feeling Sophia and I could chat across many topics for many hours. I'm really thankful that she was so generous with her knowledge across so many areas of expertise. So I want to jump right into this week's mantras. Use these mantras and affirmations to shift your thinking and how you're approaching these complicated matters. I will say each twice and then I'll leave space in the third for you to repeat it out loud or say it in your head. Number one. I am only as well as my neighborhood. Wellness starts with we. I am only as well as my neighborhood. Wellness starts with we. Second, I get into the granular of issues, so I have a more complete understanding. I get into the granular of issues, so I have a more complete understanding. And finally, I learn so I can know. I know so I can care. I care so I can act. I learn so I can know. I know so I can care. I care so I can act. Let me know your thoughts on today's episode. Feel free, if you haven't already, to give this podcast a nice rating and review and click subscribe so you can be first to hear next week's episode. We are continuing to take requests, so please feel free to DM me about topics that interest you that we haven't yet covered, and I will chat with you all next week for more Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.